PhD Futures Now, a podcast on collaboration, career diversity, and graduate education in the humanities. This podcast is a project of Humanities Without Walls, a 16-university consortium headquartered at the Humanities Research Institute at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and funded by grants from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Today on PhD Futures Now, we are joined by Leonard Casuto and Robert Weisbuck, co-authors of a new book entitled The New PhD, How to Build a Better Graduate Education, published earlier this year by John Hopkins University Press. Len is a professor of American literature at Fordham University and writes the graduate advisor column in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which focuses on contemporary issues in American doctoral training and advising. He is also the author of The Graduate School Mess, published by Harvard University Press in 2015. Bob is the former president of the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation and served as the president of Drew University from 2005 to 2012. Len and Bob, welcome to the Humanities Without Walls Consortium, and thank you for joining us today on HWW's new podcast series, PhD Futures Now. Great to be here. It's not only great to be here, but we're so glad that you exist as an organization. It's so important that you're doing what you're doing and promulgating a more public face for the humanities. It goes right along with what we talk about in our book concerning PhD education generally. You are our heroes. Oh, well, thank you so much. I know that means a lot to both Deepti and I. And I think we wanted to start the conversation really easily and ask, why this book and why now? Why now? Well, this book could have come out in 1985 if people had been willing to read it then. Uh, the issues that we are talking, that we talk about in the new PhD are issues that have vexed graduate education for about 50 years. That's five, zero, 50 years. The, the idea that we are training graduate students for jobs that don't exist, and even worse, training them to want those jobs above all others. That's been going on for a really long time. But in 1985, 1990, 1995, the, uh, uh, the faculty and the administrators of graduate programs, they didn't really want to hear what we had to say in this book, and, they, um, and the students probably didn't either. In 1997, Elaine Showalter, during her turn as president of, of uh, the MLA, the Modern Language Association, uh, dedicated her term to what we would now call career diversity. And she met with enormous resistance and was attacked. And the issue, again, went away for a long time. So we could say in this, if we look at this historically, that uh, the 2008 financial crash, though a disaster in so many ways, had at least one virtue, which is that it uh, made it even more difficult to claim that uh, things would be all right if we were only willing to wait long enough for them to change back to the 1960s when for a brief period of time there were more academic jobs and there were PhDs to fill them. That was true only in the 1960s. But uh, there's been a, there was a long-lasting nostalgia for that time. Post 2008, that uh, that it became impossible to um, to look away from the fact that we were facing a new normal. 
And, you know, there's an origin story to our book that's probably worth telling and that underlines some of what Len just said. Uh, by the way, I graduated with a PhD in 1972, and, and the job crisis, so-called, which is no crisis because it's been going on for 50 years, had already begun then. Uh, and, and we've had our blips up and our blips down, but it really has been essentially the same situation for what is now half a century. That's enraging, frankly, uh, when you think about the lack of decisive action in regard to the shortage of professorial positions. Um, the, the story of our book begins with a report to the Mellon Foundation. That is to say, about 2014, Earl Lewis, who was then the president of Mellon, uh, told me that uh, we had worked together on PhD reform when I was the head of the Woodrow Wilson Foundation uh, in the 90s and early 2000s. And Earl said, you know, Bob, I just met with a group of graduate deans. My gosh, they're talking about the same issues that we were treating uh, 15 years ago. And it's as if it's it's as if nothing's moved, nothing's changed, no lessons have been learned. Could you write a report on all of the reforms that took place between about 1990 and uh, 2005, at, at which point the reform effort went quieter, basically. And I said, sure, but it's it's uh, Len Casuto who knows what's going on now. Uh, we, we do better doing this together. And Earl was delighted by that. And we wrote the report. But his story, the idea that it's the same issues over and over again, decade after decade. And, and as, as one wag put it in, in a, a book, that, the title of which I don't remember, everyone knows what's wrong. The question is whether there's a will to do something about it. The emphasis in our book then is not just on naming the problems, although we do try to amplify, bring them out, characterize them, investigate what's, what, what's wrong at bottom, but, but more our emphasis is on how are we gonna fix this? How are we gonna make this better in practical terms? What do we do next? And what we do next is decisively not talk and talk, but talk and then do, do in a timely fashion. Wonderful. I think that that's a, a good segue into our second question and thinking through what are some of the things that might mark that things are changing. And and I know Deepti and I have talked a little bit about this in the past, which is the role of faculty in all of this work. And in your book, you discuss in a number of places that one of the primary barriers to reform is what we would call faculty resistance. Why do you think that's the case? And what incentives do administrators and faculty have in leading these reforms on their campuses? I would, I would think about two aspects of human nature shared by faculty, but not exclusive to them. One of them is habit, that it, we are all creatures of habit. I wake up in the morning, I take the dogs out for a walk, then I have my coffee, et cetera, et cetera. Anything goes wrong with that? Uh, I, I'm discombobulated. So we are creatures of habit. As Len says, academia is even an exaggeration of habit, of tradition, of not falling for one or another giddy scheme as K-12 sometimes does. So that's a virtue to some extent, but it also makes it, uh, it, just, it just innately conservative in its practices. And what I think really adds to the habitual nature of things and the stoppage in a way of innovation 
is that we all know as faculty, we've lived through this, that once you start something, it's very hard to get rid of it. So if you feel like whatever you're voting to start is going to exist long after you're gone, you're going to be very careful about what you agree to do. And so one of our emphases in the book is to say, we need to have uh, sell-by dates. That is to say, any innovation in doctoral education should not only be continuously considered, because you're never going to get it all right from the start, you're going to have to make adjustments along the way. But also, after a certain number of years, let's say three or four, you're really going to take a, a close look at what you've decided to do. And you're either going to say, hey, this is working great, let's expand it. This is working well, let's maintain it. Or this really isn't doing what we hoped it would do. We agree to stop it. And I think once faculty have the sense that you can pull the plug on something, they might be more willing to plug in at the start. The second sort of human attribute that I think is a difficulty for us in doctoral reform is that we all project out of our own experience. Very natural thing to do. So faculty tend to say, you know, this has been my life and this can be your life, but it can't be in reality. And, and at the worst, it looks like a Ponzi scheme almost. The number of people who are going to lead the same life as their professors after getting a PhD is very small. And the failure rate, if that's what you take to be success, is well over 80%. So we have to get faculty to understand that their experience is not normative. It's, it's been extraordinary and that they were able to grab the brass ring, that they are almost like the equivalent of Bernie's 1%. Maybe it's more like 10% or 20%, but it's their experience is not what they should expect their students to enjoy. They have to get beyond themselves and not project their own experience. A, a, phrase, a phrase that is in common, common use in the last 10 years is alt-ac or alternative academic. We don't much care for that phrase because um, it implies that anything that is not an academic job is a, uh, a second best alternative, a plan B. Uh, it also echoes alt-right, which has its own problems. But the, um, the, fact, the fact is that if, we were going, if we're going to talk about what the alt-job is now, it's academia. That if we look at the numbers for, for uh, PhD graduates, the majority of them are doing are going to do things that are not academia. Our book has three headlines. Those three headlines are student-centeredness, career diversity, and public and a public face for graduate education. To talk about student-centeredness is already an innovation. So I, I'm um, I'm inter interviewing some graduate students in Ireland right now because I'm investigating a program that uh, University College Cork has uh, been, been uh, uh, put in place a few years ago to help uh, graduate students and postdocs, particularly in the sciences, make the transition from uh, an academic way of thinking to a more career diverse way of thinking. And one of the, one of the postdocs who I've been talking to uh, is particularly eloquent on this. I just want to read a couple of sentences that she uh, from from a um, uh, something she told me recently. She said, 
one of one of the biggest takeaways from her change of mind, she said, was I'm more than learning that I'm more than what my research defines me as. I guess I always thought my professional experience and value was predicated on the research that I had done. But uh, this Odyssey program that she had just gone through helped to show me that there are values in doing a PhD and a postdoc that go beyond what one researches in. It's so easy to compartmentalize oneself in academia. And uh, she felt, she said, that the Odyssey program at University College Cork helped to open up the many opportunities that are out there to me. So this isn't a plug for the Odyssey program. The Odyssey program is breathtakingly simple. It's a matter of, of um, giving graduate students a shot of reality followed by a dose of hope. But it is that the idea that you're more than the specific subfield, you're more than the specific knowledge that you create. When graduate students believe that they are the, that their research is the sum total of who they are, then it then it will make them hard it will make it hard for them to look at the world as a place of opportunity. Instead it becomes a place of threat. You know, we all I think we all have success stories. That is in fact the occasion of this book being published, the new PhD led many of my former PhD students to write to me, people especially who had left academia for other other sectors. And and their stories are are so similar in, in a certain way, which is, yeah, I'm not I'm not necessarily interpreting the poems of John Donne <laughs> in my job at the World Wildlife Federation at at uh, uh, in in uh, this or that government agency and this or that philanthropy and this or that uh, uh, phar pharmaceutical or whatever. But I can't tell you how much everything I learned in graduate school comes into play every day, often subtly, often not directly. You know, there was a study uh, about 20 years ago uh, at Berkeley when uh, Joe Cherney was the uh, graduate dean and uh, Marisi Nirad was the head researcher. She's now at the University of Washington and, and one of the real uh, heroes herself of, of graduate reform. And basically they took five different areas of, of PhD graduates. I think that in the humanities, it was English. And they asked them, not just at Berkeley, but all over the country, they, they asked a sampling of these students you know, what they were doing now, what the degree of happiness was with what they were doing, whether they would get the PhD again. What was, two results were especially interesting. Those who, had, who were working outside of academia were slightly more pleased with their jobs than those who had stayed within the professoriate, who had remained in the professoriate. But secondly, those who had left academia by about a 90 to 10 percent count said that they would get the PhD again, that it had added either to their life, to their career, or both in such a way that they were glad they had done it. Even if you factor in the, you know, the sense that people want to affirm their, their lives in some ways, past and present, that's a remarkable result and one that we should take as, as a kind of guide to what we should be doing in the future. There's a really interesting quote that Deepti and I we're particularly struck by as we were reading the book and talking about the questions we wanted to ask you today. So I wanted to read the quote and then ask a couple of questions in relation to that quote as a follow-up. So you say on page 124, let us put this in literally bold terms. 
We teach graduate students to want something that we know we can't supply except to a very few. That means we're teaching them to be unhappy. That's a terrible thing for teachers to do to their students, yet graduate school in the arts and sciences has institutionalized it. Above all, that is what we must change. So one of our questions in relation to that is when you speak of reforming graduate education, how can such a reform movement be inclusive of the wide diversity of student interests and needs in the academy, as well as for jobs outside of it? And we are particularly concerned that this also extends to racial equity and social justice questions of which our society is really grappling with at the moment. Yeah, so one, one, one half has to do with the larger ideas that you began it with, and the other has to do with the specific case of um, the uh, uh, underrepresented groups. How can graduate school look like America? How about if I take that first, the first part, and Bob takes the second? What unites graduate students, PH, uh, PhD students across the spectrum, is that they are information experts. They are very, very sophisticated in dealing with information. They can. They can synthesize it. They can they can distill it. They can gather it. They can expand it. They can uh, um, they can analyze it, and most of all, they can teach it. But what if they don't know they can do those things? This is a big issue. That uh, I talk to graduate students at campuses all over the country, and there is a very low awareness of the that uh, on the part of graduate students of the vastness and the depth of their skill sets. And this gives them an insecurity. How can I do anything but what I'm doing? And that's and this is something that faculty, uh, sad to say, the structure of the programs that we create for graduate students encourages this, it's this idea, not simply of narrow specialization, but of a belief in the narrowness of one's skills. If to, to use an use an analogy here, that we are teaching graduate students that they are Lamborghinis, you know, high high performance sports cars that can only race on a racetrack. But what if there's enormous traffic on the racetrack and they can't actually get anywhere? In fact, graduate students are all terrain vehicles. They don't have to stay on the track. They can if they want, but they can go off and they can have all kinds of adventures off the track because they're equipped to do that. And when we are, when we teach graduate students, we need to teach them about that diversity of opportunities because there's happiness, there's pleasure, there's fulfillment on, on places other than the track. In terms of one of the other questions you raise, uh, we say pretty bluntly in our book that the PhD overall is still too white and male. Uh, and and that we lag many other social sectors actually in our attempts at diversity, which is especially odd in the sense that politically uh, most academics consider themselves to be generous, progressive, and so on in their attitudes. We perhaps unconsciously make the PhD feel alien to many people from underserved communities. And what we've learned in, in survey after survey, report after report, is that graduate students from those underserved communities, and women as well, have a greater desire than the overall average to bring their learning back to their communities, to have their learning possess a social purpose. 
And so when we talk about a public-facing PhD, when we talk about greater social engagement, a greater sense of how the PhD can meet up with all of the urgencies of our time, uh, we're not talking about you know the the tail wagging the dog. We're talking about letting the dog out of its cage. And to to uh, to bring it back again, the these ideas become both recruitment and retention tools for students from underrepresented groups. That uh, because if you don't recruit and retain, if you don't devote devote resources, devote thought to both of those, then you get nowhere. And graduate school does not look like America. It's difficult, more difficult, to make graduate school in the arts and sciences look like America because your applicant pool is smaller than when you're uh, recruiting potential undergraduates. But it's not impossible. It's not. It's not impossible by a long shot. By doing a lot of the um, uh, of of the, uh, the the things that we're suggesting, our our book. Our book contains examples of best practice from all over graduate education, from from admissions through um, the uh, through academic job market and non-academic job markets and pu- public-facing graduate education. In the case in the case of diversity, we we provide examples of how of programs that are doing it right. Also, because we want we want our book to be more than just a hortatory call. We're doing some of that here, obviously, but the book is a toolkit, and it contains a lot of instructions about how to use the tools. We spend uh, a few a few pages in this book, which is to say, a fair amount of time, on the pipeline program at the City University of New York, which not, uh, practices recruitment on an undergraduate to graduate level. That is, it's uh, the uh, the idea of uh, diversity in graduate school. They recognize starts with promoting it on the undergraduate level but the uh, the kind of co- the kinds of connections between the undergraduate and graduate level in the CUNY pipeline program amount to a culture that they have created a, a subculture within the larger culture of the CUNY Graduate Center that is devoted to first of all giving students from underrepresented groups a place to be, a place where they can talk to people who understand their concerns, where they're coming from. This is not something that will necessarily work in the same way in every program, but the ethos of the pipeline program, we feel, is exemplary because it shows how you solve this problem of making a place to belong using the resources that are present in your on your campus in your program. I think having such a, a kind of uh, consortium at a university where where students from uh, underrepresented groups can meet, can talk together and so on is very important, but it also doesn't in any way excuse a department or a program from thinking about that programmatically with all of its people. And so one of our emphases in the book is on something that uh, David Grant in the Social Profit Handbook calls mission time. There has to be mission time in a program. When I think of all the conversations that I've never heard over 50 years in higher education, I've never heard a bunch of faculty talk about what it means to be an advisor. I've never heard a bunch of faculty talk about 
whether we should be considering applications in a more generous way so that people don't have to all pretend they want to be professors uh, in order to get into the program in the first place. I haven't heard, and so on and so forth. I haven't heard much talk about the teaching that we give to graduate students so that they're not just teaching over and over and over the courses that faculty don't want to teach, but rather have an opportunity to become educators progressively through a very carefully designed program of graduated responsibility in pedagogy. Don't hear those conversations. The problem is that what's most urgent is often at odds with what's most important. So the budget may be due next week, but how our students, our diverse students are interacting with the program doesn't have that urgency until perhaps the students get so upset that they say something. They shouldn't have to, it shouldn't be that hard. This is a conversation that should be occurring all the time. It can't occur unless we schedule in intentionally mission time to talk about the various issues facing us and to look ahead and say, what might we do better or differently in the future? As we talk about graduate reform, it is also important to connect it to the job crisis and issues of career diversity writ large. On the one hand, the lack of tenure-track jobs in academia is one of the most glaring problems for PhDs. So career diversity is the need of the hour as we have touched upon today. On the other hand, there are many universities that rely on graduate students to teach. So graduate labor is important to keep programs and departments running. We see this also as a problem. And how do we balance this problem against one another? I wish the employment problem within academia were more of a problem in the sense that we now have an army of underemployed, underpaid adjuncts who can take the place of graduate students in any of the introductory courses that graduate students are often assigned to. And so to me, that sounds like a complaint from 30 years ago or 40 years ago, rather than the present situation. Unfortunately, there are all too many people out, out on the street who are willing to come in and do the work of TAs. And all that we need to do really is to perhaps say to, to graduate students, this semester, this one semester, instead of doing a TA ship, uh, we have some internships outside of campus to offer you that will develop some other abilities that you already possess, but that will allow you to apply them in a way that you'll see for yourself. Secondly, you know what? It doesn't cost any money if I'm teaching a course and, and, and give a, a, an essay assignment of some kind to graduate students to say, and by the way, while you're doing this, what you're doing is you're developing your ability to, let's say, compare alternative views, which is something that will come in handy regardless of whatever it is that you do. In other words, faculty can help students to identify the transferable capacities that they possess. So there's, there's no one solution to the problem. However, I think that what we can talk about here is how we frame the problem. There you go. What do our graduate students need? And if what our graduate students need is the kind of exposure to career diverse possibilities that, as you say, empowers them, makes them do better work, not only outside, but inside of the walls of the university, then we need to work from that and say, okay, our students need this. How do we give it to them? And then 
how do we deal with the needs that have arisen as a result? You know, while we're talking about career diversity, we're sort of skipping over a particular subject. We want to pay attention to the fact that most uh, graduate students who do stay within academia and end up in, in professorial or, or teaching positions are not going to be at research ones or selective small colleges, which may be what they're most uh, accustomed to. At one of the Woodrow Wilson uh, uh, meetings that we had many years ago, a president of an urban uh, campus said, you know, your graduate students, when they come to work for me, they really don't like the students that our place attracts. They don't understand that our students often have to drive 30 miles to come to class, that they can only meet at night, that they're holding another job. They tend to look down on those students. And so the ability to get, even within academia, to give graduate students a sense of the full ecology, the full landscape of higher education in the United States, and their capacity to adjust themselves to work in different situations right now is quite lacking. And again, we can fix this. We can fix it without the expenditure of a great deal of money. It, it takes something, but not as much as people would imagine to establish networks like that, to give people this opportunity. And again, it's a matter of really thinking about first, what do students need? What would your advice be for those grad deans who want to be empowered and are leading reform efforts, but seem to, to not have the labor capacity in their grad schools to implement these types of reforms or other types of resources? In that question, I am specifically thinking about my grad dean, but I know that there are other grad deans across the country who are probably in similar positions. So when when you're pointing to a, a, a structural problem of great import that we talk about in the book, that when the different deans in the liberal arts get together across and discuss their concerns across the table, you can tell which one is the grad dean because the grad dean is the one with the empty budget and the cup that he or she is holding and going from one, one of the other deans to the other, asking for contributions to fund his or her worthy initiatives. The idea that um, graduate, graduate school deans are uh, always the poor one at the table is something that we call for in the book as we, it's, it's, um, it's a situation that we are calling for an end to. Now, how can you end it? That will differ from institution to institution, culture to culture. But, uh, the, but graduate deans have to be very agile, and they have to be able to communicate the import of their, their penury to not simply their fellow deans, but to those who would fund them. It's not going to be an easy job, but if it's going to start somewhere, it has to start with throwing a spotlight on the idea that graduate education is in many ways the intellectual heart of the, of the, of the university enterprise. And to, uh, to, to say that you're the heart of the, uh, of the university enterprise, the intellectual heart, then, um, and then to give, give no support to it. Well, it's, it's inconsistent. It ha and it's, we encourage administrators and across the board to reconsider. Let me answer in the same vein, but a little less in a little less friendly spirit. Who's responsible for this situation? 
Derek Bach noted as president of Harvard that graduate education in the, in the arts and sciences was the least well-administered aspect of the university. And I, I think we would all agree with that. Having been an interim graduate dean for a year, I experienced what it was like to have inadequate resources in order to incentivize good practice. It's absolutely ridiculous. And who is most responsible for the problems that we are describing? University presidents and provosts. Really, it's time for those in charge of universities to take this on from on high. They have the capacity to restructure administration in such a way that graduate deaning becomes a much more dynamic activity. One that has a lot of carrots and a few sticks to uh, help departments and programs become all that they can be for their students. The graduate dean is the voice of the student, but you have to give that voice a microphone. They don't have it now in many, many cases. In the few cases where they do, you see an extraordinary amount of enlightenment activity going on. If you can hear muffled thumping noises in Bob's answer to our last question, that is Bob passionately thumping hands on the desk as we were recording this episode. Bob's and Len's commitment to reforming graduate education in ways that will allow the university to adapt to the needs of its students now can be seen in their book, The New PhD, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. If you want to learn more about the history of reform of higher education in the U.S. and more importantly, what graduate education reform in the 21st century can look like, we invite all of you to take a look at their book. To celebrate the release of the third episode of this brand new podcast, we are doing a giveaway of the book, The New PhD. To enter the giveaway, follow us on Twitter at our handle at PhDFuturesNow and let us know what was your favorite part in this episode. For more details, please contact us on Twitter. Our handle once again is at PhDFuturesNow. PhD Futures Now is produced by Humanities Without Walls Consortium. I'm Deepthi Murli, the producer of this podcast. This particular episode was hosted by Maggie Nettersheim Hoffman. In the next episode, HWW's PI, Dr. Antoinette Burton, hosts a conversation on racial and social equity in higher ed with two HWW alumni, Lisa Betty, PhD candidate at Fordham University, and Timothy Brown, postdoc at University of Washington. Thank you for listening, and we will see you back here in three weeks. Until then, please take care.